Welcome to Fuel Podcast. I'm your host, Leela Ansart, leadership advisor and certified executive coach. On this podcast, you'll hear the stories of successful individuals and how they were able to overcome adversity by channeling strength from an internal driving force. My mission, shine the light on alternate strategies that can move you from reactive to strategic thinking, from overwhelmed to motivated, and from burnout to balance, so you can move forward and over-deliver on your current goals. Let's dive in. Today's guest is Dr. Anne-Maria DeMars. She's been recognized as a Forbes 40 over 40, recognizing women's innovation, an AARP Purpose Prize Fellow awarded to those who embody a purpose-driven life. She was also inducted into the International Sports Hall of Fame, which recognizes those who have had international accomplishments in sports and then gone on to major accomplishments in the academic, business, or nonprofit sector. She and her daughter are the only mother-daughter pair in the International Sports Hall of Fame. Fun fact. A serial entrepreneur, Dr. DeMars has founded or co-founded five companies and one nonprofit foundation across two continents. Her latest two ventures are Seven Generation Games Incorporated and the Strong Mind, Strong Body Foundation. She's currently president of Seven Generation Games, making educational games and the tools to make them. Also, she's a seventh degree black belt in judo and the first American to win the world championship giving her more right than anyone else on earth to call herself a coding ninja. In our conversation today, Dr. DeMars and I discuss being a minority in tech, the little known benefits of working with family members, and this idea of being financially successful in your business while doing good in the world. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Anne-Maria DeMars. It's a pleasure to have you here today. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to share both your story and your accomplishments with my audience today, Dr. Anne-Maria. There are so many things that are interesting I can't wait to ask you about in regards to who you are and what you've accomplished in your life so far. So if you would, why don't you give everyone an introduction and explain who you are and what you do now, and maybe perhaps if you would, the path that brought you to today's place. Okay, the 30-second rundown. I am president of Seven Generation Games. We're a company that makes educational games and the tools to make them. We just got back from the Warm Springs Reservation, for example. We're making a game based on their history and culture. We just finished a game based on doing statistics and teaching kids how to compute quartiles. So we're all across the board. Before I did this, uh, I was the world judo champion. I have four kids. I started out not very promising to be a person with a PhD in multiple companies. I actually left my last foster home at 15. And by 19, I had my first college degree and 21, I had my MBA. So that's the the quick rundown. Well, obviously, um, you know, humility is one of your, (laughs) your high points here. You zoomed right through something that I just find fascinating, knowing you're in computer and programming and gaming uh, now you zoomed right through the fact that you're the world, a world judo champion, which is just incredible to me, not in just in general, but because of the path that you've taken and all of the things that you have, uh, that you've accomplished. So tell us a little bit about that, if you would, and how you went from judo to uh, a completely different world in gaming. 
Well, it's funny because I'm atypical in a lot of ways. I was the first American ever to win the world championships. And judo then, even more than now, was a very male-dominated, predominantly Asian-American, Eastern European sport. And I am neither Asian-American nor Eastern European. It was just by chance. I was a short, fat little kid that read all the time. And my mom said, you need to get some exercise, do a sport and shoved me into the local YMCA. And back then they didn't allow girls to join a lot of sports. Hmm. You know, now it's against the law to say, oh, we don't let girls do this. But back then they just, "Ah." and judo was one of the few things they let girls join. Oh, interesting. But it actually was a great preparation in a couple of ways for being an entrepreneur, particularly in gaming, because judo is something that's almost all male. It certainly so is the tech sector and gaming in particular. It's something where lots of people were telling me I couldn't do it and I didn't belong there. And that is very similar to when I started Seven Generation Games and tried to get funding from investors. They're like, well, we know who's successful. It's not people look like you. Ha ha, well done. And the other thing I, I tell kids all the time, because I do a lot of, of, of guest lectures in middle school, high school classes, is if you're going to be world champion, something to be top of the world, it's not like you're going to work out two or three days a week for a year, and then you're number one. And there's a lot of this talk about people being overnight successes in startups, but you re- usually that overnight success was working at it for 10 years with nobody paying attention. And that's mm-hmm. the same with the startup. It's it's pushing water uphill mm-hmm. some days. You get up and you do it, you do it again, and you, you email people, hey, we can make a game for you. And you email that person back that three months ago said they were interested and ghosted you. And you get up in the morning and try to learn more about whatever programming and language you're using. So it's very similar in that it's a very long slog that not a lot of people make and a lot of people fall by the wayside. So that level of commitment and Mm -hmm. effort is actually very similar between the two. And standing out like pepper in the salt shaker for me is very similar between the two. I like how you said that standing out like pepper in a salt shaker. So once you won the world judo championship, uh, what was your, what was your thought process in terms of what you were going to do next? I was already working as an engineer and I was engaged to be married and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And my husband said to me, what is it that you really want to do? And I said, well, I really liked college. You know, I think I'd like to be a professor. So it's funny because all these people I know that I work with, like I'm going to the International Society for Technology and Education Conference uh, in a couple of days. And all the other researchers are, oh, and I had this plan and I had this plan. And then I, I was going to go work here with Don McMillan on the learning acquisition potential device. And I was like, well, I was pregnant. The University of California is right down the road. So I thought, what the heck, I'll go get a PhD. So there was that was basically it. And then I really liked statistics. I really like math. And the advisor said, well, you, should, you know, pure math, there's not as much work in that. Nobody needs you to prove the central limit theorem for them. So why don't you pick an applied area? And I picked educational psychology for the simple reason they had the most grant money to pay me with. So mm-hmm. I, I look at young people now that have these very structured plans and no, I just kind of fell into getting a PhD in applied statistics. 
It's so interesting. I fell into getting a PhD in applied statistics. I know, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just a funny sentence all on its own. <laughs> you know what, though? I was at uh, the SAS, the Statistical Software Conference, several years ago. When we were sitting around, you know, having a beer, a bunch of us. And, and one of the guys said, how did you get into this? And pretty much everybody around the table had a story like that. Well, I was looking for a summer job and SAS Institute was up the road. There weren't a lot of sociologists wanted openings. So, yeah, I don't think a lot of people say when they're a little kid, I want to be a statistician when I grow up. But I really like statistics. I think more people should think about it. Interesting. Well, you know, what I love in, in your story is um, a couple of things, I think. I, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and uh, we often talk about, you know, career choices and what are you interested in and what are you thinking about? And there's this, there's a, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs who've been entrepreneurs for years, like myself, there's definitely a pushback to this overnight success story, same as you mentioned, you know, like, May, wanting to make sure that that kids, especially the ones that we are responsible for molding, like our own children, he, they understand the amount of hard work and commitment that's involved and required if it's ever going to um, to turn into something meaningful. But at the same time, I find your story refreshing because we don't always have a path. You know, some people do. They may perhaps start out with this well thought through path that they're planning on following. And maybe that works out and maybe they get sidelined by something. But I know a lot of people who don't either the, the, the general idea they had didn't work out or, you know, a family obligation derailed them for a few years, or they just had a lot of interest and in nothing that was really screaming at them. Do this one, do this one. And I love the idea that you took what was in front of you and your interests and your level of commitment and said, I'm going to pursue something here. And like you said, what the heck? I'm pregnant. I know I want to do something with this. Let me just go study some more. And then trusted yourself, it sounds like, if I may, to figure it out as you went along. Well, I don't know who it was that says that life is lived forward, but it's only understood backward. And I see a lot of people who have plans and even if they go along with them to a certain point, then they get, I don't even know if derailed, but they jump off the track sometimes mm -hmm. deliberately. Like my co-founder wanted to be a journalist from the time she picked up a pencil when she was four years old. Mm -hmm. She got a journalism degree from one of the top schools in the country, got a job with ESPN, worked for Sports Illustrated. And by the time she was 30, said, you know, I've done all the peak things in this this field. I wrote a bestseller and she was looking for a new challenge. And I said, come work with me because every game needs a story and you're a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so now she's our CEO. That's fantastic. Yeah. So whether it's life got you derailed or you went through and accomplished everything that was on your list and now you're ready for the next chapter. That's pretty interesting. I think so many times, uh, especially when, when people's paths are not linear, linear, um, it can seem like there's there's no rhyme or reason. And um, I'm always one that likes to kind of dig under the surface and say, what was the motivating factor? Because even though you couldn't tell as you were living what the rhyme or reason was, there was something that kept pushing you through, uh, whether it was that, you know, don't tell me I can't, I can't do this or that I don't belong here, that you mentioned perhaps may have been one of your driving forces or something else. And I think if we develop if we, I guess, develop our awareness of what those things could be and then 
and then find the one that that sticks that resonates it, it can really help us to keep moving forward when we either jump off the tracks or life does derail us what do you think for you dr Anne maria were some of your defining moments of fuel as we like to say in this conversation It's so much as a moment. I think it's the same as being successful in a sport or in a startup. It's every, every day. And what I look at is because I was good at math, I was able to be successful. I was able to accomplish things that a lot of kids who are in foster care or juvenile hall don't do. And I think about that probably every day Mm -hmm. that I want to be able to give other people the opportunity to be successful that maybe don't fit that mold of success. And I do it as a for-profit company because I wanna prove that you can do good things and still be successful. People in business don't have to be evil. They don't have to be people, you know, cutting down the national forest to burn the trees to make a, a you know nuclear power plant or something. Right. And I think in the U.S., that isn't really perceived as the case so much. It's like, oh, you're making these games that teach math and language, and oh, that's really nice, and I'm going to invest my money over here in delivering groceries faster. Oh, you're hiring people from all these underrepresented communities. That's really nice, but I'm going to invest my money over here with everybody who hires people that look like younger versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. So that... I think that's my fuel is improving that you can do things that make the world a better place, that make people's lives better and still make money at it. I like how clearly you put that, that you're wanting to to create a almost like a, a template or a, an inspiration, an inspirational story about someone who did this real life, practical, built a business, doing awesome things and is financially successful as a result. Right. Because you people, I, I, I'm some, sometimes people are a little put out when I tell them how much it costs to make a game. And we actually, I don't, I don't mind talking about money at all. When we first started, it cost about $250,000 to make a really good quality game. And we've been able to get it down to about thirty-five to 50000 So that's massive, right? And I'm talking about not something your niece made over the weekend, but a game that, you know, tens of thousands of kids will play to learn about your business, if you're the National Corn Growers Association, about corn or whatever it is. And I will sometimes work with groups and say, well, you know, you can't do it for free because we're a good cause. And, you know, we're teaching kids about agriculture. Well, no, because I have to make a payroll every two weeks. I can't Mm -hmm. do it for free. So I think also we need to change that mindset of because I'm doing something good, it has to be for free. And nobody gets paid. Now, I don't get paid near as much as I did when I worked for, you know, if I went back to working for General Dynamics, but I get paid enough to, Mm. you know, live in by the beach in Santa Monica. Actually, I don't. We've lived here a really long time. If I buy this place now, I probably couldn't afford it. (laughs) But still, I get paid enough that I can make the payroll every two weeks. And that's yes. Yes, and and it, and it absolutely should be that way. What do you think has been most surprising to you uh, in terms of this perception about um, doing good and um, and being paid fairly to do so? I think it's the it's getting through to investors that this can be a good investment. 
Mm-hmm. And even though we started this company 10 years ago, kind of as a side thing, right, that we all three did, and seven years ago we incorporated. So we are still here and we are still making my career, but it's convincing investors that this can be a viable business model. And I don't even know what else I need to do, go to people's houses and shake them personally and say, look, we're making money in that Juicero thing that you invented, you funded, you know, crashed and burned years ago, invest in this. So I think a big uh, challenge is getting investors to look at, this is not the traditional thing you've been funded, but the 90% of those things you've been investing in are failing. So look over here, guys. Interesting. Interesting. And when you're in the middle of those moments, I mean, I know you shared a few stories with me. Uh, what what kind of mantra do you come back to or, or, you know, driving motivator? I, I don't know if you want to put this other podcast. I'll tell you any kind of inappropriate. We can say something else. <laughs> but our CEO just retweeted something she saw that said in those dark, darkest moments when I wonder if my company is going to make it. I am steeled by the fact that some douchebag in a Patagonia vest in Silicon Valley is not going to be right about my failure to execute. So uh, I think that's one thing that fuels me is, yeah, wanting to prove people wrong, to say, we can make this company success. This is a viable business model. And if I have to push water uphill to make you all see it, I will do that. Mm. Who do you find? I love it. I'm totally leaving that in. <laughs> Who do you find are your biggest uh, supporters in this journey that you're on? Uh, surprising people. So, for example, we just opened a community round. I don't know if you're familiar with that, where instead of going to, say, 10 extremely wealthy individuals and asking them to each invest $100,000, you go to you know 10,000 people and ask them each to invest $100, right? And the people who invested early on, there are a couple of my super good friends, but there were a number of people that I didn't know terribly well. People who follow me on social media, people I've met a few times at conferences. So I was really pleasantly surprised to find that there are supporters out there who are not exactly the loudest cheerleaders, but will write the checks. Mm-hmm. That will make the introductions to people who want educational games for their community or their museum or whatever. And that... It, it happens every time you do something, just to find that the people who genuinely back you are not the ones cheerleading the loudest. Mm. Wow. What do you what do you take from that as you move forward? Besides the obvious lesson there that there are there are more investors that may not be so loud. I mean, it, how can you extrapolate that into into like an everyday lesson? Well, one thing I've learned. I ask everybody, I ask everybody, are you interested in having us make a game for you? Are you interested in investing in our company? Instead of saying, oh, well, this person doesn't have any money or this person isn't interested in education. I look at everybody as a potential customer and a potential investor because you just never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, specifically in, in your industry, you don't know what they're passionate about, what story they want to get out there. And uh, as you know, as anyone, any of us who have children know, 
putting it in some kind of a gaming packaging is a great way to share those stories and to um, share history, share stories, as well as help them learn the maths and the sciences or the the practical academic um, content that's woven in there as well. Um, Dr. Amria, you're you've been recognized as a Forbes 40 over 40. You, like we said earlier, you won the World Judo Championship. Um, you've you've received other awards as well. Um, I noticed that you work with your daughter, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. What what's that like? What are the highs, and if you're willing to share the lows of working with a family member, um, and things that you've learned along your journey from that relationship. Well, here's an interesting thing. My two co-founders are my daughter and my husband. Ah. People have said to us sometimes, well, I don't know about investing in a family business. And I think to myself, what's your family like? Because my family, the people in this world, least likely to throw me under the bus. Mm. So that it's a pretty good setup in that we all three have different levels of expertise. So Maria is a storyteller, right? She's a very gifted writer. She does the narrative for the games. She's also much less likely than me to swear at people and tell them we don't need their money if they got that kind of attitude. She said, don't tell investors we don't need their money because we do need investment money when to scale this company. But she, you know, she's good on putting a designer suit and going into those investor meetings. And she's really good at writing and the stories. And Dennis and I both write software. When we started the company, we were the only two software developers. But I really love statistics and the data analysis and the back end stuff. And he really hates to leave the house. So if somebody needs to go and meet with customers and say, oh, so you want a game on that teaches about uh, climate change? Tell me all about it. I'll be the person to go and get all the technical details. So because we each kind of have our own areas that we're really good at, Mm -hmm. we're not stepping on each other too much. And we have a lot of respect for each other. The toughest thing when we started, now we've worked together a long time, so I think we kind of got over that. But I think for both Maria and Dennis is when I criticized something they did, they took it personally. Like my mom is telling me she doesn't like this, or my wife is telling me she doesn't like this. I think because we've got worked with each other a long time and have a lot of respect, it, it, does, it isn't that way anymore. But I still do remember early on, you know, the first time Maria did something and I thought, that's really not what I had in mind. And I kind of had to take a deep, long breath. And she didn't take it very well when I said, look, you really need to to redo that. But it came out much better. So Mm. you need to overcome those challenges. But whoever you worked with, I think you would have to overcome challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I do think there's an an added dynamic there because, uh, like you said, you you hold multiple roles in each other's lives. Um, And I see it as a strength point of a point of opportunity, because if your family dynamic is strong, it weaves you together. The loyalty is even stronger than if it were three independent uh, co-founders, you know, working together in a company. And it sounds like you all are very self-aware in regards to how things can be perceived and perhaps which hat you're wearing when you're speaking to each other. Are you wearing your mom hat right now or your wife hat, or are you wearing your president hat and your co-founder hat? And um, you know, needing to be clear, I know with the family businesses that I work with, there's definitely some very intentional posturing um, that goes into having certain difficult conversations around framing who you are in that moment when you're 
having a conversation? Are you speaking to them as a family member or as a board member or president or a, you know, whatever the position is? So very, very interesting. Um, tell me something as we close up here today, Dr. Ann Maria, that perhaps not a lot of people know about you that would be a, a fun fact that you could share. Hmm. Well, I think I, I have a lot of daughters and one of them is fairly high profile. So I think a lot of facts people know about me. So one that like wouldn't be on Wikipedia. That's a good question. <laughs> hmm. What have I done in secrets? Uh, well, one kind of cool thing is uh, I, I really, really like hiking. And because of that, I often end up in places that I'm not supposed to be. Uh, there's no photographic evidence. So I have plausible deniability. <laughs> but many places where it says, keep out, I go in. And so as a result, I've been, you know, hiking in the Andean Mountains with the condors flying next to me. I was oh, wow. just yesterday on the Warm Springs Reservation and saw where people actually fish on scaffolds with dip nets so I've been in the wow. Costa Rican uh, rainforest with little tiny crabs running all over and walked down hills with, even at my advanced age, right, where they have ropes because it's so steep that you need to hold on to something to get down the beach and there's nobody but me and a gecko. So I think because I sit in my office and write software, people would know that mm. on the rare occasions that I'm not here, I'm probably out in the rainforest or out in the woods or somewhere in some place and this is kind of a, a metaphor for life the harder it is to get into somewhere the fewer people you see there yeah yeah that's a good one uh this has been a pleasure i really appreciate you sharing so much about your journey i'd love to give our listeners an opportunity to learn more about you and even take part if there's uh, an open opportunity right now or when this episode gets released to become an investor, if they're seeing the vision that you're sharing. So how can people learn more about you and where would you direct them to? Uh, they could go to our company website. It's seven, the number seven, generationgames.com. Okay. And they could follow me on Instagram, it's Anne Maria seven, Jen, G-E-N, or Anne Maria Stat on Twitter. A smarter person would have had the same thing across all social media, but there you go. I've had that challenge too. <laughs> we don't always think that through when we're signing up. I do have one that you didn't ask that my yes. was noting. So I have four adult daughters and I think a key thing, I mean, you mentioned your daughter's only 14. Is that your young, your oldest one? My oldest. Yeah. I have an 11 year old son as well. I think it's a challenge as your children become adults to look at them as adults. And I think that's one reason that we've probably been successful working together and not everybody has a good family, which is maybe why investors are, are skeptical. But I was talking, arguing, might be a better word, with one of my daughters the other day, a while back, and she said, Mom, I am three decades old. I am a multimillionaire. If I am going to make mistakes, I should be able to make those mistakes. And that was a real clip, you know, moment for me when I thought, my kid is an adult and I need to treat her as an adult. And I think with all of my children, actually treating them as an adult has vastly improved our relationship. And 
that's something that you kind of have to deliberately think about at some point that this little baby that I wanted to protect from everything is now an adult and has every right to make her own decisions, even if some of them are stupid ones. <laughs> it's true because we would say that about other adults too, right? We can't control other adults. You got to make your decision. You do you, you got to live with the consequences, however you want to put that, right? But it's a, it's a really good reminder. I'm curious what age that uh, epiphany hit you at. Well, I could tell you with her, she was 30. Because she was just like, Mom, I am three decades old. <laughs> I was like, yeah, she's right. Yes. yes. I should back up. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Uh, this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really excited to get your story out there, Dr. Amaria. This podcast is brought to you by Leadership Impact Strategies. We help today's business leaders to navigate the people challenges of this pandemic era. With a focus on compassionate leadership, we help you eliminate team dysfunction and increase your own leadership capability, resulting in higher profits, sales, and results to your bottom line. Like what you heard on today's episode? Turbocharge your own leadership by grabbing our free resources. Discover your leadership strengths and potential blind spots with our leadership quiz, or grab our free checklist for holding an engaging team meeting. Find them both and more at www.leadershipimpactstrategies.com forward slash resources. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to Fuel Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts so you'll be notified of every new episode. Until then, I'm Leela Ansart. Here's to you finding the fuel you need today. Yeah.